Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of various things. I am Emily. I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to take you back 130-ish, well, no, 150 years uh, to what's going to sound an awful lot like what's happening right now, kind of. Should uh, we make Should we make the Wayne's World sound like, when go back in time? Okay. Exactly. I did it. So, <laughs> perfect. We're, we're going back in time to talk about the Minnesota 1st Volunteer Infantry Regiment and where the one of the major Confederate flags used during the U.S. Civil War went. Where did it go? Mm. So Minnesota was, in fact, on the Union side, just <laughs> to clear that up. It'd be uh, really strange if it wasn't. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the volunteers... For this regiment, signed on for a three-year contract, which was much longer than the typical three-month enlistment period of the time. And they ultimately suffer, suffered over 80% casualties by the end of the war. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They were highly respected for honorable conduct during battle, for highly accurate shooting, and for willingness to engage in up to like five to one outnumbered odds with the enemy with readiness. Wow. So they were... They were considered very respectable, hardworking soldiers. And they were at major battles. They were not on sort of the western front of the war. You'd think since they came all the way from Minnesota, they might just go as far as, I don't know, western Tennessee or something, and or eastern Tennessee or something, and fight there. But they were in Virginia and Maryland. They fought in the first and second Bull Run battles in Manassas, Virginia, They were also, which were also known as like the the first bull run was known as the first major engagement in the U.S. Civil War. There had been smaller engagements or more protective engagements. I'm not going to get too bogged down in battles. That's the easiest thing to do with Civil Wars. This is talking about the U.S. Civil War. It was it was the first like very massive engagement between the Union and its enemy. And then there was Antietam. Uh, it's also known as the bloodiest day in U.S. military history with over 22,000 deaths on that one day. And that was in Sharpsburg, Maryland. And then there were also the first and second battles of Fredericksburg, which took place in, in Maryland. And they were also at Gettysburg, uh, which was a three-day battle in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, with massive losses on both sides. And the Minnesota First actually lost 82% of their numbers in le in less than three days because they I don't think they were engaged on the first day. So between the second and third day of the Getty Warrior Battle, they lost 82% of their personnel to Holy as casualties. Holy cannons. That's crazy. Yeah. So unfortunately, most of the Minnesota First Volunteer Regiment died in battle uh, versus getting to go home. So why am I talking about them? Uh, they were noted for interaction with enemy flags. At Antietam, they shot down three enemy flags and ultimately shot a flagpole in half. And this sounds odd. Why shoot flags? Well, a few different reasons. Symbolism. Uh, the flag was sort of a symbol of who was showing up where and uh, whether they were doing well or not in the battle. And so it's, it's a symbolic thing to destroy or capture an enemy flag. 
There's also confusion because flags were visual sing- signals in what would have been an exceedingly confusing battle scenario because you've got very loud noise, lots of dust, tens of thousands of people. And a lot of times, you know, we, we think of military as being this single, organized, uniform entity. And in the U.S. Civil War, while there were, there was sort of what's considered a stereotypical union uniform and a stereotypical Confederate or enemy uniform, there were militias, smaller uh, regiments and groups that had their own uniforming, or there were just people who didn't have any clothes other than what they had. So knowing who you were with and how to get back to them was a use of a flag. And then it's also just demoralizing to have what is supposed to symbolize you uh, removed from the battlefield. So that's why flags are specifically often targeted uh, in previous warfare. I have no idea if it's the case that that still happens. I think war has changed a lot in the past 20 years. But Oh, yeah, absolutely. I say that as a civilian, so I'm just guessing there's not a lot of like musketry going on in the world right now. Just guessing. <laughs> so, they were known, and you also have to keep in mind, so they shot down three enemy flags and ultimately shot a flagpole in half. You're doing that with who knows what artillery? Like, who knows what... Uh, not Artillery is the, not the right word. Uh, firearms. Because people would bring uh, firearms that were from the Spanish-American War. Occasionally flintlock rifles from the American Revolution. Which had only been 60 years before. 70 years before. Anyway, you know, you bring your family gun. Because it's not a time where guns are plastic and being pumped out. With, with alarming frequency. So being able to fire accurately and precisely uh, with whatever you had was a real skill. So anyway, during the second day of fighting in Gettysburg, the Minnesota First were told that in order to help buy time to let Union troops hold what was called Cemetery Ridge, a strategic point, they were going to be sent into battle, just like a, a, almost like a human shield situation with, you know, they were armed, but they weren't, it wasn't particularly intended to be strategic except to buy time. And specifically, Colonel William Colville was instructed, and he, he was part of the Minnesota First, to capture the enemy's colors or their flag. Uh, within the first three minutes of the engagement, 215 of the Minnesota First were killed, including Colonel Colville. Holy moly. I it's I didn't do the math on rate of death. That's more than one person per second. So anyway. Yes. Uh, then on the third day of Gettysburg, the remaining 47 men were in one of the few areas where Union and enemy troops engaged closely. So as Gettysburg wound on and strategies changed, it was less likely for as direct person-to-person interaction was going to take place. So they got uh, lucky, and I'm making air quotes. Uh, The command of the Minnesota First changed multiple times during this battle because officers kept dying. But a one Private Marshal Sherman 
captured the 28th Virginia Infantry flag, and they brought it back to Minnesota as a war trophy. And it was given to the Minnesota Historical Society. And for quite a while, it was actually available to be viewed. Uh, but sometime in the uh, either the late 90s or in the year 2000, it was actually hidden. It is a somewhat stereotypical Confederate flag, but it's square, which infantry flags tended to be. You, it, flag language is very specific. It looks like a Confederate flag. It's just square. And... Uh, so Minnesota still has it, and it's hidden somewhere. Okay. Uh, Virginia wants it back. They are claiming heritage. They want their heritage. And Minnesota has consummately ignored any attempts to get it back. Uh, but it's Minnesota's ter- uh, heritage that they won this in the war. That is a very prescient statement, and uh, somebody else said that, and I'll get to who said it in a little while, but you're probably going to laugh at who did. (laughs) Uh, So in 1887, Grover Cleveland uh, provided an executive order to return Confederate flags. And even Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederacy, thought this was ridiculous. Uh, Captured flags belonged to captors, and the executive order was eventually rescinded. But then in 1905, there was a congressional order that Civil War relics be returned. That has been consummately ignored by Minnesota. In the year 2000, a man from Virginia threatened to sue Minnesota on the basis of the 1905 congressional order. But the Minnesota Attorney General pointed out that the legal basis for this suit didn't really exist. And they were basically told no multiple times. Uh, And I'm going to do a few quotes about what governors have said about returning this uh, flag. Governor Mark Dayton, we declined that invitation. It was taken in a battle with the cost of the blood of all these Minnesotans. It would be a sacrilege to return it to them. It's something that was earned through the incredible courage and valor of the men who gave their lives and risked their lives to obtain it. As far as I'm concerned, it is a closed subject. And then Governor Tim Pawlenty said, they're not getting it. We believe it's rightfully ours and we're not giving it back to Virginia. And then finally, Governor Jesse Ventura, also known as Jesse the Body Ventura, who is a uh, wrestler, said, we won, we took it, that makes it our heritage. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So, Sarah, you are in complete agreement with (laughs) the Governor Jesse the Body Ventura. Wow. That's not a sentence I ever thought I'd hear in my life. Right? (laughs) I mean, he's... you know, no one has ever said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, today is the day. Today's the day. So Minnesota captured the colors. They refused to return it, as is their right legally, ethically, and in the tradition of battle. The enemy flag will not be returned. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Yep. So that's where it went. It's hidden somewhere in Minnesota. Interesting. So it's hidden. I'm betting like only a handful of people know where it is mm-hmm. and they're not telling anyone because there's going to be some Virginia mission out of, you know, people that still haven't ha- have are still fighting the civil war. They still want this flag. Well, <laughs> it's going to exactly. be like did... a mission impossible movie. <laughs> yeah. And then they get to like somebody's basement and it's not there. And then the vault locks and they're trapped forever. 
(laughs) (laughs) Now it's a horror movie. Yeah, now it's a horror movie. And then there's, you know, Saw is there or something or whatever, like some creepy doll. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So that's our movie idea. Don't steal it. I did not bother to try to contact someone to ask where it was because I don't really want to know. It's none of my business. <laughs> it's somewhere it's somewhere in Minnesota, probably. Yeah, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> well, cool. Well, speaking of crazy poop, I'm trying to like make a segue. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk about gong farmers. So what the heck are gong farmers? I have no idea. So they are not people who go out and like grow brass gongs and like farm them. That's not who they are. So gong farmers, gong is an old English word for dung. And old English as in House of Tudor England, which is from about 1485 to 1603 and included kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, and it ended with Queen Elizabeth I. So gong farmers are, or gong scourers were also called nightmen, which is a colloquial term for the, a person or people who were hired to clean out the cesspits the privies, and the outhouses in Tudor England. So, yeah, they cleaned the poop pits, and this is before there were water closets, uh, large-scale sewage, uh, sewage sewage lines, sewage pipes, uh, toilets, and fresh running water. And mm-hmm. this is before the, uh, like I said, the big brick sewers of the Victorian project times. They were paid relatively well, as you can imagine, nobody, you know, wanted the job. So the people that did the job were actually paid well, which is good. But if you think about the state of PPE or personal protective equipment, it's now in all of our vocabularies because we know that masks and gloves are part of your personal PPE at the time. And in reality, it was probably pretty bad and... This was before excrement and germ theory was really a thing, but we did know that poop was bad and you didn't want to live near it. So the, the, the gong farmers, and I have farmers in quotes, used buckets, shovels, wagons pulled by horses or donkeys. They filled the wagons up full of the poop and they took it far away from the city into the country where it would either be spread over fields or dumped into rivers or put into special dumps. Mm-hmm. So the privies were placed over town ditches and often there were cesspits. And I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you if I'm right in this definition, the dif- difference between a cesspit and a, and a uh, septic tank. That, so the cesspit is an underground container of anything uh, for wastewater and waste, but it needs to be emptied frequently. Whereas a septic tank is more modern construction, is actually a whole system that processes the waste and the water is eventually uh, put into a soak away system. Am I right? It's pretty close. Okay. It's pretty good. I, I would accept it. I, I would hear someone explain it that way and be like, they know what they're talking about. I can use more sophisticated words. <laughs> So the gong farmers would uh, go into the cesspit and they would usually go through the seat. Think about how horrifying that is. Or they'd break open the wall of of the pile. So they break open the wall to get all the poop out. 
And it was a really dangerous job, as you can imagine. Um, Emily has told us many times not to stick your head into a septic tank. Just imagine the poisonous fumes at this time when people are pooping and dumping all kinds of things. And this is before running water, etc. So there were a lot of rules and regulations regarding gong farmers. Um, and so they, they, they weren't supposed to be able to live in the city. I don't really understand why they couldn't live there. But apparently there was a lot of rules in places that they couldn't actually live in the city. They could only work at night so people didn't have to see them. And they had penalties for if they spilled lots of poop everywhere, if they dumped it in incorrect places, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. there, there was one um, case that I read that a gong farmer dumped it in an incorrect place or he had been dumping it too close to the city or in, in the wrong place. And he was actually put into a barrel full of poop with his head sticking out and had oh to walk around town like that. It sounds so awful. <gasps> oh, that's so bad. Yeah, it's disgusting. So where did they go? I posit they never went away. Um, so if you remember our porta potty waste episode, this is pretty much the same job, only with better technology and vacuum trucks instead of wagon, uh, covered wagons and donkeys and horses. So it it uh, the night soul men, gong scours, dung scavengers, they they existed pretty much up until uh, the Industrial Revolution, where in particular, like London and larger cities, population swelled. And in Victorian times, there are large-scale projects started where they tried to have um, sewer systems, tried to install sewer systems to connect maybe smaller sewer pipes throughout the city so that there was one large system. At the time of industrialization, I guess the River Thames uh, smelled like death from first-hand mm -hmm. accounts. And just imagine all the disease and stuff that could, that could have come from the poop and the awful smell of the river. It's just, it's horrifying to think of. So people were still throwing chamber pots and, and uh, going into the cesspits and cesspools still existed. But around Victorian times and industrialization, when cities were getting bigger and people were coming in for work, is when large-scale sewer systems started existing. So thank goodness for flush toilets. I'm very thankful for them after after learning about gong farmers. I watched a couple of YouTube videos and I was I was like, wow, I, I am I'm so glad. I'm so thankful for modern sewer systems. And we don't have cesspools and cesspits anymore. So cesspools are still allowed in certain states. What is the difference between a cesspool and a cesspit? I think they're kind of the same thing. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of these terms get used both colloquially and are kind of mixed up. Uh, it has been my impression that it's more common for the term cesspit or cesspool to either be open air or if it's covered, have a gravel bottom. Okay. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be emptied. It certainly would. Uh but that's not always the case. It's it's the type of thing where these terms become really muddy, particularly because they're used by so many different people in so many different places. Yeah, okay. But they are 
all so different from Tudor England. <laughs> yes, that that was kind of my point. Like, I'm so grateful that it's something that most of us don't even think about. Like, we hear about Fatbergs, which we've talked about one of one of our pretty early episodes. We talked about Fatbergs, and there are still sanitation workers that have to go in and actually shovel out the Fatberg because it's just a congealed mess of disgustingness that is clogging the sewers, especially uh, it happens in places with old sewers that still have old systems from Victorian times. But these people are hopefully paid well. They have, they're often wearing suits. I believe they have to wear suits. They have like breathing systems because you can't, you can't be down in the sewer like smelling this noxious gas and people have to like take turns from what I remember when we were talking about the Fatbergs. So a lot has changed. And of course the porta potty, the porta potty people, the the honeypot uh, emptying people, it's it's just like the the gong farmers of yesterday. It's just with better with better technology. So they it didn't really go anywhere. It's just a job that has changed. Oh yeah. Definitely. Well, and you're mentioning um Tudor England and I know after the 1500s I think I want to say it was the 18th century so 1700 somewhere in mm-hmm. there uh, or it was the early 19th century uh, in Edinburgh and I wish I could remember the guy's name but there was a uh, a true innovator in terms of night soil collection in that Uh, He encouraged the construction of these in-home or attached-to-home water closets, as it were, that all the waste went into basically a tub under the seat. And the tub, you could open a door in the house, take the tub out, and then just dump it in the wagon. And it was constructed so it was very easy for the gong farmers night soilmen, whoever, whatever their name ended up being. It's probably something completely different in Edinburgh because of uh, Scots English. And, you know, who knows? Uh, it was almost exactly what porta potty <laughs> collectors do now, mm-hmm. uh, in that it was kind of washed out a bit and then put back, or uh, or it was the tub was taken out and replaced with a clean one. Uh, and then they would do the same sort of depositing the night soil somewhere. But it would be uh, on a collection schedule, like garbage collection. Huh. Or like porta potty collection, which yeah. is on a schedule. Amazing. Uh, and so that's 17th century. And the things, you're right, they haven't gone anywhere. That It's better pr- protective equipment and plastic instead of wood, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> An understanding of uh, what exactly can happen if you're around poop all the time. So yeah, I'm so grateful for these people that have done these jobs. And I'm incredibly grateful to have uh, plumbing and like I said, modern sewer systems. It is really just thinking about the terribleness and the horrible smells that must ha- must have been around, like just like it was just part of life back when you had just open air cesspools 
I can't even imagine. Or having a river stink so bad that because of sewage just flowing in it. Well, and the Thames was the main source of water for London. Exactly. So, yes, they didn't go anywhere. The job just changed as technology changed and language changed and they were called all kinds of things. But I like the term gong farmer because it makes me think of, you know, like if you have a brass gong for dinner, there's like some guy that would come and bring you your brass. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, I'm just imagining someone with a gong walking through a field, just banging on it. (laughs) <laughs> just gonging through the field i don't know what they're growing but that's it's a, it, yeah in in my head it's a key part of the process they're <laughs> they're growing something that needs to be gonged every day yeah <laughs> grow little planties bong <laughs> <laughs> that's great i've never heard of that yeah but i know this is an area of of expertise of yours so i was glad for the help well, and I'm I'm grateful that uh, you covered it just because I've never heard of it. Oh, interesting. Cool. So thanks. Uh, you can find us at wheredoesitpodcast.com. And you can also contact us wheredoesitpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns. We also have a Patreon, which Yay! is fun. I don't actually think we have any patrons yet. <laughs> <laughs> be the first. You could be the first. Uh and we have an Instagram account and a Twitter account that I've been neglecting dreadfully. Uh, and Pinterest. You can find us. You can find us. We're around. We're around. We're we happy to talk. We didn't go anywhere. <laughs> nope. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. <laughs> All right. Thank you.